Hello and welcome to episode 3 of Shell Shocked. In this episode, we'll be talking about skeptical activism, and later we'll have an interview with Jay Novella, one of the hosts of the popular podcast Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. He'll be talking about his skeptical video project, Off the Skeptical Caveman. We'll also have a science report about the psychological phenomenon of influence and persuasion, and the lessons we can draw from that research when we're doing our skeptical activism. And later, we'll have a good news segment from Amanda about some of the positive results of skeptical activism against a cancer quack named Stanislaw Brzezinski. So as always, get yourselves settled in with the beverage of your choice, and brace yourselves for Shell Shock, Episode 3. Some of you may have read online recently about an investigation Amanda and I were involved with called Operation Bumblebee. This project was the brainchild of Susan Gerbic, founder of Guerrilla Skepticism on Wikipedia, and it involved a rather complicated operation with the subject being self-described psychic channeler Chip Coffee. We carried out this operation in November of last year, 2014, and then we took to the internet and published the results far and wide. What we expected to get from the naysayers, of course, that being the believers, was a lot of blowback. Instead, what we got was, for the most part, radio silence from them and some really strange and unexpected criticisms from our own people. So Amanda and I decided that we would discuss this issue and talk a little bit about what we planned on doing, what we actually did when we carried out this project with Susan, and then what the aftermath was. So in case you haven't read any of the articles on randy.org, the Bay Area Skeptics website, uh, Skeptical Inquirer, etc., here's basically what we did. We were contacted by Susan Gerbic, and we were let in on a little secret. That secret was Operation Bumblebee. We were sworn to secrecy and we were told that we would each carry out a role in an investigation on Chip Coffee. Now if you're not familiar with Chip Coffee, he apparently has a couple of television shows on A&E including Psychic Kids. I had never heard of him, but apparently he's a thing. And so he was going to be in Los Angeles and in San Jose giving psychic readings. And his onstage game is that he claims to talk to dead people. And so he claims that people who are dead and have crossed over talk back to him, etc. So Susan set up this operation in which we would have an online presence, or at least several of us would. Now these would be artificial persona that we would not be aware of. It ended up being Susan Gerbic, myself, and her friend Jan, who's also part of the Monterey County Skeptics. We went in with our game faces on. We created fake persona. We created fake relatives who were dead, and we told anyone within earshot at this event that we were there to look for these specific people. Mine was my dead mother, who's actually alive. Susan was trying to contact her dead three-year-old, who died 20 years ago in a car accident. Her son is alive and well and had nothing to do with a real person. And Jan claimed that she lost a sister in the Twin Towers on 9-11. Uh, we were hoping that 
the online persona and information that we had put on Facebook would somehow be picked up by him and used on stage. That part did not work. He did not fall for that. Apparently he doesn't use Facebook to get information, or at least he didn't then. So no hot reads. However, it was curious that he seemed to be talking an awful lot about the details that we had been sharing with people around us. Now the reason that we did that was because some so-called psychics will actually have plants in the audience who will listen to the people sitting around them and report that back to the so-called psychic. So, in my opinion, that may have been what happened because Chip soon started talking about an older woman bringing through a small child. He apparently claimed that he saw Jan's dead sister and that she had certain music that she loved to listen to and sending lots of messages of love, etc. Now there are other things that happen too and you can certainly look online and look in the show notes and read those articles. But suffice to say once we published this on various websites that's when the real fun began. So I'll let Amanda talk a little bit about what that aftermath was like from our people. It was the surprising thing about this was um, a lot of the comments we received we'd almost had expected to receive from those in the believer community. And a lot of the comments seemed to have focused on the ethics of what had actually happened and whether the so the sting was a good idea and whether it, it looked good for us in the skeptic community. I think that's a, probably it in a nutshell, don't you think, Sheldon? Yeah, uh, I think it began for me anyway on an Italian skeptics website where they were saying, well, where's the proof? You should have stood up and confronted him, which I think is just ridiculous because we were surrounded by his believers. They certainly weren't going to believe us. And it would have been very disruptive, and that in itself would have been yep. disrespectful and yep. unethical. So that was pretty easily dealt with, that criticism, at least I thought so. The next was, well, you don't have any proof of this. You didn't record it. You don't have any video like, you know, James Randi when he busted Peter Popoff and others. Um, so we're just supposed to take your word for it. And we said, well, yeah. yeah, kind of. I mean, we're on your side and we we set out to tell a story. So we're telling the story, take it for what it's worth. And, you know, I was kind of a smart aleck about it and said, the difference between me and Chip Coffee is if you don't like my story, you can have your money back. <laughs> and since it was free, there you go. And then this latest thing, for me, it's not really about whether or not we should have ethics. Certainly we should have ethics. And I'd love to have a discussion about do we need some kind of unofficial ethics code and maybe even an ethics board. Now that would be strictly voluntary of course, but maybe the Bay Area skeptics and the Monterey County skeptics could get together and create some kind of IRB, an institutional review board, or at least a code of ethics that we all agree will go by when we do these investigations. I'm fine with that. What I've taken offense to, right or wrong, is the change in conversation. Rather than discussing what we carried out, suddenly it's been a discussion about ethics, which to me seems to suggest that somehow we were in the wrong and did something unethical, and I just don't see it that way. I don't see it that way either, and, and that t took me a little bit by surprise. Um, I mean, I know we, this was something that we'd all worked together over a long period of time, and we, you know, the whole group that was involved were not all, obviously I'm not American, but all not Americans, we were from all around the world. We worked together, we had our roles to play, you know, and I 
still am extremely proud of the project, of what I'm, my participation and my continuing participation. And for me, it's the essence of what activism, skeptic activism, is all about. And I and and I felt deflated, especially when I received numerous messages um, of almost abuse for for what had been done. And to be honest, I was taken by surprise a little bit that I wasn't able to react properly because I thought, I honestly was not expecting some of the reactions that we got. And then I got really sad by some of the reactions that we got. Rather than look at the data, rather than look at what had actually happened and the results, they decided to go along this other route and circumnavigate the work itself and then wanting to carry on about why we did it and if it was and if we should have done it and all this stuff which to me is a little bit counterproductive the deception that was done is really small in comparison to someone standing up taking hundreds of dollars from people preying on on their grief and on their loss and on their need to know it and t giving them information that has that cannot be proven to be true for me, that's deception. I totally agree with that. And and I would love to have a conversation, maybe at TAM this year, maybe at our own conference, Skeptical. I would love to have a workshop or maybe a, um, a one-hour lecture on ethics in the skeptical realm. That's all well and good. But like you said, we were completely unprepared for this. Like, uh, like you, I didn't even have a response. I just thought, what in the world are people even talking about? Do they not realize how much hard work went into this? And not I, that I expect A for effort, but I at least expect the conversation to be about the subject at hand, which is the fact that, in my opinion, these people are faking. They are not real psychics. We were, we were speaking earlier before we started recording, and, you know, Chip has responded finally. Um, I guess the pressure caved and he <laughs> has responded officially online. And his response was, I knew they were fakes all along. And oh. I thought that was rather curious because he really only called on a handful of people out of the 100, maybe 150 who were there. So if that's true and he knew we were fakes, he had a lot of options rather than giving us readings. Yeah. Yeah, and as I was saying to you previously, I mean, I was in the chat room when Susan um, was giving that interview for the Paranormal Radio, and I, as and yourself, fielded a lot of questions. It was that chat room particularly was very heavy with believers, and they and they brought up that exact fact that Chip had said he knew all the time. He, he and I actually managed to have a look at the articles and the blog posts. He knew that it was deceptive. He knew that the group there was being deceptive towards him and that, that they were fake. Well, what I don't understand, and this is what I brought up and I made a couple of them think, if I was him and if I was wanting to prove my credentials as a psychic, first thing I would be doing is standing up and going, hang on a minute, you, 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 you're all faking this. Call you out and prove myself to be the best psychic ever. Exactly. But he didn't do that. Let's say for one minute that he did actually know. He called you guys upon for readings. He kept taking money from people to do readings. So if he did know, well, it doesn't make him any better a person because he continued to take money and do readings. 
So what does that say? And that seemed to be something that people seemed to have not got at that first point until it was brought up in their faces. That and I, and frankly, I don't believe he knew at all. Oh, he was all over us. I mean, he ate it up. And and then he said also in his article that everyone around us, all of his true followers, they all knew we were fakes too. And he implied that they wanted nothing to do with us. Well, I beg to differ. And if you want a real ethical dilemma that I suffered that night, it wasn't whether or not I lied to Chip Coffee. I have no guilt over that whatsoever because I have no respect for the man at all. I think he's a fraud. However, I did feel some ethical dilemma over the people who gave me their contact information and asked me to stay in touch. Or I should say, they gave it to my alter ego, Wade, not to me. And when we went back to the coffee shop afterwards, I, I talked with Susan and Jay and the others and I said, what should I do with these notes? Like, they passed me notes and stuff and said, oh, we really like you and stay in contact with us and here's my Facebook name and here's my phone number, etc. Should I toss them in the trash? Should I call them and say, hey, I was a fraud? What should we do? That's an ethical dilemma. And it also disproves what Chip said, which was everybody knew they were fakes. Uh, no, they did not. They loved us. Yeah, and, and that, as you said, that completely disproves that. And, you know, it was just, it's just, it saddened me a lot to see some of the reactions that we got. Not that I, not that we don't welcome constructive criticism or not that, that we don't welcome feedback, because of course we do. We have to, you know, we're critical thinkers and, you know, being a skeptic isn't about automatically knowing that something is true or false. It's being open to the evidence. But the negativity that we received was not about the results or what was done. It was to tear us apart almost in, in for the for the for what we had actually done in terms of organizing this whole thing. And um and frankly I don't agree with it. I, I think we did a great job. I think it was a, it set a really great precedent for for people out there who want to make themselves out to be psychics, take money from people they're going to be going to shows saying, how do we know now that we're not going to be exposed also? So it's it's saying to me loud and clear a message that we're out there, we're not letting them continue just to go and do their shows and take money and everything like that, but there is going to be people who care enough about the truth and care enough about the evidence to sit there and be the voice for those who can't, who don't know any better. And for me, that's what it's all about. On the line with me now is Jay Novella, one of the hosts of the popular science and skepticism podcast, Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. In case you've been under a rock or off the grid for the past decade or so, the SGU, as fans call it, is consistently one of the top-rated science podcasts on iTunes and has thousands of fans from all over the world, owing not only to its high-quality contributions to the world of skepticism, but also to the intelligence and just plain likability of its hosts, which include Steve Novella, Bob Novella, Evan Bernstein, and my favorite rogue, Jay Novella. So Jay, thanks for being on Shellshocked. Oh God, I'm so happy to be here. Thanks, Sheldon. So let's start out with a relatively simple question. Who is Jay Novella? 
I am many things. Um, that's interesting. Uh, well, first of all, um, I would define myself as a incredibly happily married uh, father uh, with a two-year-old and another child on the way. Um, you know, that's without a doubt the most important thing I have in my life is is my wife and my 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 son. And um, beyond that, um, I am a skeptical activist and a promoter of science. So how did you first get involved with skepticism in the SGU? How did it all happen? Well, we, we started, um, it's always we, right? It's always, it's always a, a more than just one person. It was always a group effort. So really, Steve was the, um, the person that inspired the rest of us to actually learn about critical thinking and skepticism. You know, we started um, over 20 years ago, um, you know, essentially just starting like a library meetup group the New England Skeptical Society. Um, that's it, and we still actually uh, still own and run the Nest today. The Nest is uh, our our company that um, contributes to or half owns uh, Nexus, which is our conference. Um, so what what ended up happening was Steve Steve really wanted to do activism and was essentially trying to get the rest of us interested to help him and and do, you know go on this journey with him. And I I didn't even have a clue about in the early days, other than us just enjoying to talk about science, um, I didn't get critical thinking, and it took a long time, and I mean years, you know, when I say a long time, definitely years of Steve, you know, pushing books our way, and, you know, for me in particular, there was quite a bit of learning to be done. I didn't have a, a decent grasp on science, even though I was a massive fan of science and science fiction. Um, and as we continued to do that, and we, we started to get uh, you know, monthly meetings, or every couple of months we'd have meetings um, in a local library, and you know we found that the traction was um, was very slow. The average age was definitely in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Um, we just couldn't get a foothold and get a younger audience and get more and more people involved. Um, and I think after doing that for a number of years, it was very easy for us to to shift our efforts online and the idea was uh was suggested by one of our friends named Shane who wanted to start a political podcast didn't even know what the word podcast was when he was when he was pitching it to us and Steve said I'm paraphrasing but this is exactly what his intent was he said that's a great idea we're going to make a skeptical podcast and Shane you're not invited whoa <laughs> yeah because Shane you know didn't <laughs> didn't do all that stuff with us but but Steve latched on to um, to the to the idea that podcasting was most definitely something that was going to take off. It just seemed very obvious to him, and right away because it was technology based, and, and I'm a technology based person. In my you know my my day job, I, I started off as a software engineer. Um, I was there to help him and and get involved in all the technical aspects, um, and I definitely thought the podcast was a fun and interesting project for us to do. But really, that's when it really started. That's when the tires hit the pavement. Uh, I think we were we were in the proving grounds all the years before, um, and from there on out, you know, just ten years later, five hundred episodes, like we just haven't missed a week, and and you know, in nine and a half years, um, you know, we just absolutely must put out this show every week and continue to push that ball forward. You know, if one person um, gets a, a liking of science from the last podcast we did, you know, to me, it's worth it because I, I just think the world needs to have a serious infusion of love and respect and the awe that science can, can give us. And we need to, 
to continue to entice people to to appreciate it. Oh, I agree. Um, have you been surprised by the success? Yeah, it it always was surprising throughout the ten years. I mean, it just keeps going. You know, it wasn't a fast and furious moment. It just has been a steady climb over the years. Um, but yeah, it's surprising because. It always seems to me like it's just, you know, me, Bob, and Steve, not to exclude any of Rebecca's efforts or, or Evan's efforts at all, but it's a, it's, it's a very novella-based activity, you know, like the kind of talking that we do. This was the way that we always were with the family, you know, sitting around the table and, you know, half chewing our food and excitedly yelling about the last movie we saw or Carl Sagan or whatever, you know. So it, it's so familial to me. It's just, that's what we do. It's who we are. So I, I think it's awesome. I, I am profoundly moved by the idea that, that we're having an impact. Um, but I love to talk to my friends and family this way and, and have that kind of banter and joking around. Um, so it's, it's like home to me. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I totally get it. This skeptical activism that you're doing, it affects so many people, not only through the podcast, uh, but also at the amazing meeting, also your own Nexus conference, which I swear I'm going to get to one of these days. That's coming up, right? Yeah, actually, as we record this, we're a week out. Um, and this is an exciting year because we have Bill Nye. Um, not only uh, is he going to be giving the keynote, but Sheldon, can you believe it? He's doing the extravaganza show with us. Oh, that's just going to be incredible. I know. I can't believe it. Like, I'm, I'm, it, it doesn't happen that often. I, I haven't been nervous about any kind of performance of any kind in so long, but I'm, I'm a little nervous about this just from like an excitement level. I just can't wait. And I'm just like, what's it going to be like? You know, Bill, Bill's going to fit right in and it's going to be, um, it's going to be so much fun to look across the stage and see him like, you know, acting like a total dork with the rest of us. I hope you're recording all of that. Oh, yeah. We have a, prof a professional crew hired to come in and videotape everything, so it's going to be really nice. I'm also really impressed, as I said earlier, with your video series, Ock the Skeptical Caveman. For the listeners who haven't heard of it, why don't you tell them a little bit about what that series is all about? Yeah, so we, we had been making, you know, skepti skeptical-based videos, I guess is a way to describe. You know, we wanted to have some type of skeptical message in some type of you know, worthwhile viewing, right? So, um, you know, we started off with an idea that actually started around, you know what Dungeons and Dragons is, by the way? Sure, yeah. Yeah, so we were, we, me and Steve in particular, avid D&D &D fans, and um, we were playing D&D &D a very long time ago at this point, and one of our friends, Doug, uh, was joking around, showing, just, he had this funny guy that he used to work with, and he was, you know, mimicking this guy, and we were laughing, and it, and we were like, evolving this character into like a guy that does ghost hunting just came up and that and then we came up with our first video idea and that was our g hunters video which was like the most amateur train wreck of a video we've ever made but we had a ton of fun doing it and i got the film bug i got into it i just absolutely adore making films it's so much fun it's so hard it, but it's so exciting and it's it's like you know just such an aggressive thing to do you have to get up early and go to bed late and, and you, you know work your ass off and it never turns out the way that you want but you always creep forward a little bit every time you do it so we kept making them and I somehow convinced Steve uh, that you know we should spend our hard-earned money at the SGU to buy some equipment you know so th this is snowballing um, and then we finally got to the point where we, we felt like we had reached a level where we could bite off something much bigger. And we decided, you know, instead of like a two-day shoot focusing on, you know, a, a two- or three-minute 
comedy bit. Let's do a multi-episode show and, and bite off a much bigger story and try to tell more and show more. Um, and we literally, you know, we invited George Robb in into the writing room with us and we just, you know, we hatched this idea about Ock the Skeptical Caveman, the first caveman that has critical thinking. Like the first time somebody, you know, it occurred to them that we need to look deeper into things and investigate and, and you know, but it, it turned into much more of like he's already a critical thinker. You know, it, it is along his his journey, but he the show starts with him as a critical thinker. And it's we're telling quite a, quite a number of different things in here. Uh, but most importantly, the message is don't be a dick and um, you know be be a good person while you're spreading, you know, your knowledge along the way. So that, that really is the lesson that we learned from the Ox series. Um, but Sheldon, God, it was, it was a two-year project. It was the biggest project I've ever done, including my work, my real work life, you know, like my, the thing that pays my bills. Like it's, I've never done anything more difficult than this, emotionally, physically, everything. It, it wow. was, it was gut-wrenching at times and it was, you know, euphoric at times. Um, and I'm proud of the work. I mean, I wanted it to be better. Of course, no filmmaker walks away, you know, I think other than, you know, the super high-end directors that have unlimited money and say, yep, I got exactly what I want. Um, and that's part of the, that's part of it. You know, I, I learned a lot from it. I think everybody that did worked on the project had a great time. And I hope that people that watch it, um, you know, this isn't like, I'm not teaching people how to, you know, how to think or whatever. I'm, I'm essentially showing them uh, an interesting and hopefully funny story about things that you might be able to relate to in your in your life today. Well, I mean, you might want them to get better, but I have to say I'm really impressed with the quality so far. I mean, the acting is good. They're amazing hysterical costumes. And they're really funny and poignant scripts with a great message about critical thinking. And I also like that you guys didn't make Auk perfect. He has issues. Like you said, he's still adapting and growing. He's kind of a jerk to people sometimes, frankly, and he has to learn that lesson. And in one that I saw recently, he actually falls prey to some of the nonsense and has to learn a lesson for himself. Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, you can't make perfect characters. They have to. Their flaws are what make that makes them interesting. That's what drives the story. And you know, Ak is a massively flawed character. Um, he just happens to be intelligent. Um, but it doesn't happen to have much else, you know. He's just got an attitude problem, and he's insulting, and you know, he, he, of course, you know, it really is. I mean, it's it, that's when we were crafting these characters and trying to, you know, write interesting plots, and and we were just thinking, what traps do we fall in? You know, wh what's our biggest problem? You know, and when Phil Plate when Phil Plate gave his "Don't be a dick" speech at Tam years ago, it had an incredible impact on those of us. Um, who really saw a problem with communication styles. And it, it ended up that, um, you know, Phil Plates Don't Be a Dick just really became a part of our mantra, and it, it really found its way into this storyline as well. Yeah. You know what Auk reminded me of the first time I saw it? It was, I remember being a kid and first hearing the story of the Emperor's new clothes and how at the end there's this one little kid who calls out that line, the Emperor wears no clothes, and... Of course, he breaks the spell and everything works out. And I remember thinking, that's not how that would happen. I knew even as a kid that when you go against the group, 
uh, the group generally rejects you and your ideas. And that's pretty much what happens to Auk in each episode, which is that everyone turns against him even when he's right. Yeah, he has a hard time. You know, the, the whole tribe has a problem with him. And, you know, this was all done, of course, deliberately as we were trying to write the story. We're thinking, you know, skeptics can feel very isolated. Um, critical thinking is not, you know, it's not the most romantic, sexy, cool thing. Um, and, you know, when you when you take a stab and, and talk against, you know, common myths that people have or, or misconceptions, you know, it's hard not to be the bad guy, and, and a lot of us became the bad guy or are the bad guy or the naysayer or the guy that has a, you know, a bad attitude or whatever. Um, and it's very difficult to not only learn about science and understand the nuances of science. It's hard. It's hard to become a critical thinker, and then it's hard to talk to your people about it, even friends and family, people you love. You know, it's hard to communicate to them without being like, oh, my God, how come you don't get this? Like, seriously, look at, listen to what you're saying, you know, and then you have to, like, stop yourself and go, okay, hold on a second. This is a fully formed adult human being I'm talking to. They deserve respect. They deserve slow down, you know, don't try to change the world overnight. You know, it's it's just it's all the basics. It, it's all the commu com the communication basics, I think, of anything. You know, you can apply these these ideas that we try to wrap in jokes. You can apply them to pretty much anything you want to communicate. You're you're a teacher. You know this stuff cold at this point. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Sometimes people just aren't ready for the information, and we have to respect that. And maybe you're not going to plant yeah. a seed this time. That's one of the things that you guys handle in your big skeptical extravaganza stage show. There's a sketch where Steve is in an elevator with a bunch of people who are talking about medical myths and other nonsense. And the first time, he takes a really dickish approach and basically just calls them all stupid. And But the second time, you redo it, and he takes a much gentler approach where he just says, like, well, maybe you should look at this evidence and well have you thought about it this way and you know I like that approach a lot yeah you know what's funny you get to the point where you start you're not showboating anymore you're not showing off if you really pay attention and you want to be effective then you have to start paying attention to your communication style and it's just a, it's just nicer you know like you know you, you need to you need to just take the time to let people process at their own pace like you were saying and a lot of times you don't find success, you know, unfortunately. I, I, there's lots of people in my life I'm very close to, very, very close, immediate family members that, you know, are very profoundly religious and everything. And I, my job isn't to, to dissuade people from believing in God. It's just, you know, believe in the here and now and deal with reality for what it is. And, you, you know, you could believe in any of that stuff. I don't really care. I, you know, but don't argue with me about climate change. Right. <laughs> yeah. Don't even bring it up. Right. <laughs> well... In case there's anyone listening who isn't yet familiar with the SGU, maybe you should tell people where they can go to find episodes of the podcast and the video series and learn more about you. Well, you could go to theskepticsguide.org. That's our podcast. And, you know, our website has links to everything that, that we do. But, you know, easily just search for The Skeptics Guide on YouTube or on Facebook. We have a, a vibrant Facebook page that we've been we've been working very hard on to build our audience and that's going quite well so um, yeah just type in the skeptics guide pretty much in, in any social media and you'll find us there 
Great. Well, good luck with all your projects and continued success with the SGU. And I guess I'll see you at the amazing meeting this summer. Yeah, I can't wait. Yeah, I'll see you there, Sheldon. Thanks a lot. The Science Report. Since this week's topic is skeptical activism, I thought I'd share a few tips with you from the psychological research on persuasion and influence. When those of us involved in skepticism find ourselves faced with an opportunity to educate or change people's attitudes about an important subject, we're often at a loss as to how we should best approach the person. After all, you don't want to come on too strong for fear of seeming like a know-it-all jerk and scaring them away. But you also don't want to use techniques that are powerless and ineffective. Luckily, the science of psychology has a lot to say on this subject. Books like Patrick O'Reilly's Undue Influence and another of my favorites, Age of Propaganda by Anthony Pratt Canis and Elliot Aronson, teach us that there is a plethora of information on these subjects going back decades. By the way, I strongly recommend both of those books, and you can find links for them in the show notes. Let me begin with a summary of the research on persuasion by social psychologist Robert Cialdini, who tells us that there are six main influence techniques that humans use. One, liking. It's much easier to influence someone if they like you. Successful influencers try to flatter and uncover similarities, trying to build an attraction between themselves and their target. Companies like Tupperware, who utilize a business model in which everyday folks sell to their friends, are taking advantage of this persuasion technique, using the built-in connection between their employees and the customers, who are already their friends. Two, social proof. People like to follow the herd. It's a natural tendency that, let's face it, probably has an evolutionary root. After all, throughout most of your day. What other people are doing is probably the safer and more correct alternative. Knowing this, influencers imply that the herd is moving in a certain direction. When you hear a car commercial say, "The Toyota Camry is America's top-selling automobile for 2015," they're basically doing the adult version of, "Hey, everybody's doing it," and that can be highly effective. Three, consistency. Most people like to keep their word, but that's not because we're all boy and girl scouts. It's because maintaining a concept of yourself as a good person is central to self-worth. Researchers find that people who make commitments, especially if it's out loud or in writing, are much more likely to keep them. Influencers try to gain verbal or written commitments from people, even if they're not legally binding. That's because. People tend to follow through for fear that they won't live up to their own promises. Four, scarcity. Even when companies have warehouses filled with the latest gadget or toy, they still advertise using time-limited offers, emphasizing the idea that you're going to miss out on getting their product. People want what they can't have, especially when they think somebody else is going to get it instead. Five. Authority. 
People are strongly influenced by experts. Unfortunately, it doesn't matter much if the expert is right, or if she offers good evidence for her argument. Successful influencers flaunt their knowledge, education, expertise, or even fame to convince people to believe or follow them. 6. Reciprocity. Give something to get something. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. Or more accurately, you scratch my back and I'll feel obligated to scratch yours. When people feel indebted to you, they're more likely to agree with what you want. This feeling could arise from something as simple as a compliment, or those little samples they give out at your local warehouse store, or even that test drive you took at the car dealership. In the end, there's no such thing as a freebie. Everything ultimately has a price. Now, each of these techniques can certainly be used for nefarious purposes. But by that same token, skeptics can use knowledge of them to help others avoid hucksters. We can even sometimes use them to get people to listen to us when we're right. And looking back through them, you could probably think of a million times you experienced them or even used them to persuade someone. But knowledge of the techniques of persuasion isn't enough for us to be good skeptical activists. It's also important that we know why people are influenced by messages in the first place. Social scientists tell us that there are only three main reasons people are ever moved to behave or believe in a certain way. Number one is what we call the goal of affiliation. Most people like to be liked and they'll do anything to avoid rejection. The rules of liking and reciprocity are largely based upon this goal. We like to be liked and we want to avoid being perceived as a moocher for fear that we'll be rejected and lose our connections to important people. When people join up with various groups that take advantage of them, or when they're influenced by miseducation, it could be important for skeptics to consider what's at stake for the victim's social life while attempting to dissuade them. The second is called the goal of accuracy. When people fall prey to social proof or authority, they're doing so not because they lack intelligence or will, but because they have a need for accurate, reliable information. As skeptics, we may need to make people aware of when they're using poor methods to gain this accurate information, but it's not only ineffective to label scam victims as stupid, it also completely misrepresents what's actually happening to them. And lastly, and perhaps most importantly, the goal of maintaining positive self-concept. Unscrupulous influencers take advantage of our innate need to think of ourselves in a positive light. Nobody likes an arrogant person, but each of us needs a certain level of self-worth and self-esteem to function normally. When we fall prey to reciprocity or consistency, somebody could be abusing this need to maintain a positive self-concept by creating a situation in which the only way to avoid feeling bad about ourselves is to do what they ask. There's a lot more research than this explaining the principles of persuasion and the techniques that social scientists have discovered, but keeping in mind just these simple facts can help us not only do better skeptical activism, but it can also assist us in helping others to utilize the information we've gleaned. And isn't that what being a skeptic is all about?
This is Amanda and I bring you the good news. Today's good news is presented along the lines of the theme of sceptic activism and I'm going to be picking on our favourite topic of activists, Stanislaw Buzinski and the Buzinski Clinic. It's not the most recent good news that has come out, however, it's still highly relevant and you know what, I'm going to do it. Before I go further into this, I want to give a big shout out and a big thank you to my good friend and one of the most awesome people I know, Bob Blaskowitz, as well as his website, the other Buzinski patient group for for this information and for your ongoing work against the Buzinski Clinic. Thank you so much. So here we go. Greg Buzinski has had a myriad of charges placed against him as well as four other physicians from the clinic. The charges are pretty much the same to those levelled against his father from the Texas Medical Board and they include knowingly misleading patients by promoting Stanislaw's Buzinski's preparatory drugs as an attraction to bring in patients to the medical clinic practice while being well aware that he could not legally include most of those patients in the FDA clinical trials of these drugs. The medical practice model included Greg's conduct and conduct of employees under his direct supervision that violated the standard of care, failed to demonstrate an adequate medical rationale for evaluation, diagnosis and treatment, violated standards of adequate documentation, constituted improper charges for care, drugs, medical supplies and other services in adequate informed consent, aided and abetted the unlicensed practice of medicine, constituted inadequate direction and supervision of medical care personnel, constitute inadequate disclosure of ownership interests in a facility to which a patient is referred and violated the ethical and professional responsibilities of clinic investigators. Should Greg Buzinski lose his licence, as would be fitting if the case against him can be proved, it would be a fitting end to his short career of profiteering at the expense of others. Interestingly enough, it will be interesting to see what would happen at the end of this the end of his court case as well as the case placed against the other four physicians at the clinic. One can only hope that this would be the start of the end for the Brzezinski Clinic. Will that happen? I doubt it. The sad truth is as long as there are people out there who are scared, weak, ill and vulnerable from these illnesses, there will be those who seek to take advantage of them for their own profit. However, as skeptic activists, we can give a voice to, to, of reason to this and be there and be their voice. If just one person decides not to refuse medical treatment for this type of snake oil, it will be well worth it. Thank you. This is Amanda with the good news. Thanks for listening to episode 3 of Shell Shocked. In only a few weeks, we've gained over 400 likes on our Facebook fan page at facebook.com slash shellshockedpodcast. And we're now available in the iTunes store, so you can subscribe to us and never miss an episode. 
As always, new episodes will be housed on my website at sheldonhelms.com slash shellshocked, which is also where you can see the extra links and show notes. Thanks to all our fans, and please help us spread the word so we can get even more folks listening. Lastly, I hope to see all our Bay Area fans at this year's Skeptical Conference on Saturday, June 6th at the Oakland Asian Cultural Center. We'll have speakers like Peggy Lamo discussing the debate over genetically modified foods, San Jose State University professor Natalie Batala talking about NASA's Kepler mission, and the new director for the National Center for Science Education, Ann Reed, talking about Ebola, influenza, bird flu, SARS, HIV, West Nile, hantavirus, measles, and when you should really be afraid. For tickets and detailed information, visit their website at skepticalcon.org or check out the Facebook page, or just go to my website for links and show notes. Once again, thanks for listening, and please tune in next week for a very important announcement. There's going to be a major change to the show, and I think you'll all be very interested in what that change will mean in the long term. Until then, you've been shell-shocked.